Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, October 19th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm a senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film senior writer Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. All right, Brad, let's jump into the news today. Uh, Why the Last Man has been canceled by FX on Hulu. Have you had a chance to see Why the Last Man yet? Have you tuned into the show at all? No, I did not. Yeah, I didn't either. So I can't really speak to uh, the quality of the show, unfortunately. Uh, what's your relationship like with that comic, Brad? We've probably talked about this over the years, but just briefly. Yeah, I mean, I, I know I've covered it here and there just because it's a show that has come and gone, like uh, has been in development in various stages for a while. It was once supposed to be a movie and then it became a series and then the series had some um, starting up problems and it finally came out. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if it was just like, it didn't really feel like it was bringing anything uh, all that thrilling to the table or uh, there's just so much stuff going on that I was just like didn't feel the need to go out of my way yeah. uh, to, to, to watch it, you know. But I think, you know, it's it sounds like maybe I, I think maybe this show is a victim of its own long development process because I'll bet FX spent a lot of money to make this show happen. And since they had to rejigger a bunch of stuff, I'm betting that it was even more expensive than they anticipated and that it really needed to be like a huge hit right out of the gate to make it worth going on. So yeah, it's, it's a tough, uh, a tough arena right now for, for cable shows. Yeah. So after that initial announcement about the show's cancellation came out, I think a subsequent report basically confirmed what you just said, that this is a really expensive show and it's because of that long development process. And it turns out that a big reason that the show basically got the ax from FX was because uh, the network had essentially a deadline of October 15th, just a few days ago to um, on basically like that's when they had to decide whether or not they were going to um, like extend the option to keep the cast around for more seasons. And I think that uh, deadline arrived because of COVID and because so quickly compared to when the show premiered because of COVID and because of all those uh, development delays they had, they had to like reshoot the entire pilot. They recast the lead character. Um, so in a, in a normal scenario, I think that deadline would come, 
you know, maybe at the end of the first season or, you know, at, at, a, at a later time uh, down the down the road instead of um, before the first season is even over over before they have to pull the plug. But evidently uh, this show is being shopped around and uh, Eliza Clark, who's the showrunner, says that she might, you know, she's she's committed to to um, telling this story in whatever form they're they're able to do it and and hopefully they'll be able to find a new home i think there's rumors right now that uh, hbo max might be a, a good home for it because um they're owned by warner media and warner media is the same company that owns dc comics who published why the last man uh under the vertigo imprint all those years ago anyway so maybe there would be some sort of corporate uh synergistic home there so yeah uh sad news for people who have been you know, waiting for years and years to see this full story told uh, in live action. But, um, and and I don't know, Brad, like, because of this cancellation, does this make you more or less interested in checking it out? Because I feel like you were saying there's so much stuff on right now. I feel like a show that uh, that may end up not being picked up anywhere, that's just moving lower and lower on my personal th- list of things to watch. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Far less interested when a show gets canceled, even if it's a show that I was interested in to begin with. Yeah. Uh, if it gets canceled, it's like, OK, well, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of what's the point, uh, Mel Gibson, Brad, uh, has been cast in a John Wick prequel series. So there's a show called The Continental that is uh, it, it takes its name from the uh, hotel line within the fictional world of the John Wick movies. And this show is going to be presented as a three-night special event on Stars, And it is a prequel show set in 1975 New York City. It's going to follow a younger version of Winston, who's the character played by Ian McShane, who like owns the uh, hotel in New York. And he is this young Winston is going to be trying to survive the city's underworld in an attempt to take over the hotel uh, which serves as a meeting point for the world's most dangerous criminals. And Mel Gibson is going to be playing a character named Cormac, who I assume is going to be some sort of scumbag, uh, you know, um, crime lord or something in that uh, in, in that world there. Um, you know, Mel Gibson, like we've talked about this, I feel like a bunch of times, every time he gets cast uh, in stuff, we're like, man, you're really doing this, huh? You're really trying to bring Mel Gibson back. Um, and, you know, it's happened so many times that like you could argue that Mel Gibson is firmly back at this point. What do you make of this casting news, Brad? And does this, as our article says, assassinate your excitement for this potential show? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I don't think that I'll watch this show now because I don't want to see Mel Gibson do this. I don't, I don't care about Mel Gibson. I don't want him around the things that I like. Um, I don't want him around the, the things that other people like, even if I don't like those things. Um, he, yeah, we just don't need to give him work anymore. He's proven time and time again that he is, uh, just a bastard. <laughs> and I just, I don't, I don't want to see him, uh, in the John Wick universe uh, for fear of him potentially crossing over into the big screen John Wick universe. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. No, thanks. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, kind of a, I don't know. Have you like since the Me Too movement and like, uh, you know, all of these stories have come to light over the past several years? I feel like for a long time, those kind of stories were just swept under the rug of, uh, you know, public Hollywood figures being complete pieces of shit. Uh, But in in the past, let's call it what, four or five years, have you developed like a sort of personal barometer, like some sort of sense of uh, how to know um, whether or not you're going to engage with a piece of storytelling based on the people involved in it like is there just 
is it a, uh, a constantly shifting thing for you depending on the, the person or is there like a, a line that somebody has to cross? Um, how does it work for you? Um, you know, I mean, it really just comes down to like whether or not like they've done something that is, you know, heinous and that they, you know, there's ample evidence of, of, of the accusation and uh, especially if it's multiple people coming forward and saying these things. And uh, if there's no indication of any sort of change or, you know, um, active attempt at redemption and, you know, making up for his, the, their transgressions, you know, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter who it is, you know, um, I, it, it's, it, it's even hard to like watch, uh, older stuff that has has people in it, you know, that have come to you know ruin their careers by having things come out about them of their inappropriate behavior, whether it's Kevin Spacey or or Louis C.K. and they've both you know done done things that I absolutely loved, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and things that um, were very you know big in the in the industry. You know, Louis C.K. had a show that definitely you know kind of changed the direction and style of, of comedy shows on on cable and the kind of things that comedians can do um and you know kevin spacey kevin spacey was a, a huge actor you know and there's um plenty of other people who unfortunately you know were uh bad in the the choices that they made and the actions that they took and how they used their power and their place in hollywood uh to manipulate people and just kind of you know generally be gross <laughs> yeah I have trouble with this sometimes where I I go back and forth a lot on whether or not I'm being too sensitive about some of this stuff and like whether or not I just need to, uh, I don't know, like in my worst moments, I I try to tell myself to just grow up and like just uh, be able to separate the art from the artist and uh, don't let, you know, the the garbage behavior of some of these people affect, especially the the older stuff um, like that I either grew up loving or or. Uh, you know, older classics that I haven't gotten around to revisiting yet, but then I see that somebody's involved in it. I don't know. It, it's such a uh, a strange, I think, very personal thing for everybody because there are some instances where I can just try to push that stuff aside and and uh, think about a project during the context at which it, it came out. And then there's other there's other times which for me, like it's just any time Mel Gibson is involved in anything, I just can't find I can't get over the hump on that one. I, I just can't. Uh, I can't do it. I don't know. That, that may just be like, I don't know what it is. It's, it's, um, I can't really explain it, but I wonder if, if everybody has, uh, you know, a personal system or just like, a, you know, some sort of way of navigating this stuff. You know, I think it's a lot easier to disregard stuff when it's somebody who is still active in the industry or at least trying to, because you can hold them responsible and you can, uh, stop them from being able to make more content and continue mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. have, have success and, you know, and, and hopefully um, not be in a position where they can continue to behave the way that they have been. But when it comes to like classic movies and, you know, other, there's plenty of, of actors who obviously behaved very poorly and uh, were guilty of many of the same things that uh, those accused in the Me Too movement were. But it's, you, you know, a lot of them have uh, have died, you know, and so it's yeah. not like you can finger wag them or really anything like that. And so um it's that i think that's a much more you know difficult situation to try and reconcile when when you don't have somebody in front of you that you can actively you know blame or shame yeah 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 uh all right so let's let's turn to uh, a little bit of a brighter topic here let's talk about marvel studios a little bit there's a new book that has come out that you have written a uh, a really good review for on slashhome.com i'll link to that in the show notes so people can read that but i just wanted you to sort of give me the overview of what this book is and and whether or not you think that it's worth uh, people checking out 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, so the book is called The Story of Marvel Studios, The Making of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, it's written by authors Tara Bennett and Paul Terry. Uh, they've been writing books about film and TV for years. Uh, between them, they've covered the likes of The X-Files and Sons of Anarchy and Fringe. And uh, early in their career, they worked together on the official magazines for Lost and Alias. Um, so they've, they've been covering, you know, major uh, properties with big fandoms uh, for a long time. And so for them to tackle something like this massive story about how Marvel Studios and the Marvel Cinematic Universe came to be is uh, right in their alley. And uh, this is a huge book. It's a, it's a two-volume uh, collection that comes in you know, this uh, a cool Marvel slipcase that has uh, concept art from Marvel movies all over it. Um, and it's chronicles uh, mostly the, um, the first 10 years of the evolution of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and then digs a little bit into 2019 and beyond. Uh, it goes year by year, uh, weaving in and out of all the various projects that were in development and in production uh, as it went along. And it really gives you um, an idea of just how complicated it was for Marvel Studios to kind of navigate this and have so many projects in development at once and uh, the kind of pressure they were facing to, you know, first deliver something that, you know, was a, a blockbuster that no one expected to be such a huge hit because it was based on uh, a kind of, you know, second or even third tier Marvel Comics character that not everyone was familiar with at the time. And then to use that as uh, a launching point to hopefully lead into something unprecedented that was this assembly of interconnected superhero movies that led to a movie that combined them all into one epic crossover, you know, something that we had never seen before and hearing just how they did that. And it's a combination of, you know, pure passion from people like Kevin Feige and, you know, assembling the people who had just as much love for comic book characters as he did and wanting to treat them with respect on the big screen. And also just pure luck of how things worked out and who was available at what times. And also some of that, you know, uh, traditional Hollywood, it's all about who you know kind of thing. Because so many of the early people that were part of Marvel Studios uh, were brought in because they knew somebody else who was already working at Marvel Studios and they had a good working relationship from something that happened before. And it's just a, it's a fascinating deep dive into uh, the making of all these movies and all of the uh, struggles behind the scenes. You know, it, you know, it talks about uh, the difficulties they have of you know um, figuring out endings for the movies and uh, becoming a studio that embraced reshoots when a lot uh, at the time a lot of the the trades and you know um, sites like you know slash film even uh, thought that reshoots were always bad news for big blockbuster movies because it meant they were trying to fix something that was wrong. But Marvel, you know, um, embraced the idea of building reshoots into their schedule so that if something wasn't quite working in the movie, they gave themselves enough time to be able to fix it if they needed to. And in many ways, Marvel adopted as much uh, as they can, a similar development and production process as Pixar did, where they're always in favor of finding the best story. And if something's not working, then they don't mind kind of going back to the drawing board uh, and and fixing things like that. There's plenty of times uh, throughout this book where uh, they talk about how an ending just simply wasn't working and they had to figure out what to do to, to fix it. Uh, and that starts with even with, with Iron Man. Um, and you, you really get an idea of just the complexity of each production and how much everyone on the Marvel team is juggling at any given time. Um, I The one thing that I say I, th I think is a little bit uh, disappointing is it's maybe a little too 
celebratory as far as what Marvel has accomplished because obviously what they've done is unprecedented. It's huge. It's the most, you know, successful franchise of all time, which is, you know, comprised of individual franchises themselves. Um, but I wish that they kind of dove a little bit more into some of the um, controversies and complexities that haven't been like fully addressed in the media. Because one of the things that like I noticed that they don't ever really talk about are the times um, stories that have been publicized as far as like creative differences or complications with actors and uh, directors and things like that. Because like uh, not once is it mentioned why Don Cheadle uh, replaced Terrence Howard on mm. Iron Man two or uh anything more than just the plain old creative differences with Edward Norton for the Hulk. Uh, and they don't even mention at all what happened with James Gunn when they fired him from guardians of the galaxy wow. volume three. So it's not, it's not a warts and all um, recounting, but they, they're not afraid of talking about the more traditional production problems and the challenges of cracking the story and uh, production delays and, and things like that. And then for the more hardcore Marvel fans, uh, what they might be disappointed to see is that um, pretty much all of the TV stuff uh, is laid by the wayside. Agent Carter gets a little bit of a nod here and there, um, maybe like a few paragraphs total. But Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is mentioned maybe twice and not chronicled in any significant way whatsoever. None of the Netflix TV shows are mentioned other than the fact that they talk about when the rights for those characters reverted back to Marvel. And then because it's, this was, book was created much later in uh, in the game as far as when the new Disney Plus shows were being developed, there's only a, a small part about how Marvel was told, you know, so far in advance about the development of Disney Plus and when they started developing WandaVision and Loki and Falcon the Winter Soldier and uh, What If and all those other upcoming shows. But they don't get a chance to dive into the, the production of those. You know, I'm, I'm sure mm. that's something that would come sometime down the road if they do another, you know, 10 year plus uh dive into what marvel has done you know next yeah 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 um i'm curious about this because like you know marvel has been so successful for so long for so many years and sites like slash film have chronicled basically every sliver of information that has come out about this marvel studios goings on uh in that entire time so people who have been reading slash film for a long time i feel like we'll will have a pretty good sense already in their heads of the story of Marvel studios. Were there any uh, aspects of this book that surprised you, even as somebody who probably has, you know, well above uh, the average um, knowledge base of, you know, the inner workings of what's going on at Marvel? Yeah. As somebody who, you know, uh, who's been covering entertainment news since uh, 2009, I I've been reporting on Marvel movies almost since they, you know, began. Um, And so, much of the regular production kind of news as far as like who was hired and and when and cert, um, certain development details and things like that, uh, I was already aware of. And if you're somebody who constantly reads all the news updates about Marvel movies, um, those kinds of details will just, you know, be repetitive for you. But what makes this book, I think, more than just a recounting of, you know, trade stories and those little things is just how much insight comes from the interviews uh, that the authors were able to conduct because they talked to over 200 people and they got every single major player um, from Kevin Feige down through all of the executives, every single filmmaker who uh, directed a movie for the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Infinity Saga, all the major stars. Uh, so they they got such a wide uh, perspective from everybody and it's the anecdotes and those personal uh, thoughts and injections and um, things that 
haven't been talked about on the the press circuit that make it much more interesting. Um, there there were some things that I didn't remember or hadn't heard when they were announced, and it's like so much that like I went to see. I was like, oh, did anybody you know report this or anything like that? And sometimes it was something that came out in an interview during you know a press junket for for whatever movie. But there are some interesting details in here that haven't been talked about before, including. Um, the development of certain titles very early on in Marvel's uh, inception that never really came to fruition and were developed far earlier than they were um, were announced. Like, for example, uh, very early on, I want to say like 2010 or 2011 it was, Marvel started like a writer's program and they had uh, people developing scripts for Blade and Eternals way back then but none of that like is part of the blade or eternals that will come to know uh when they're released you know that they essentially start over from scratch and there uh there was talk about several other projects that were in development that were uh being worked on and hoped that they would come to fruition but never actually uh got the green light to go forward yeah i remember reading like you know way back in like i think before marvel studios was even officially called marvel studios when it's still just like marvel entertainment and they're being their movies are being distributed by paramount like back in you know 2008 2009 or something i remember reading stories about how they wanted to make shang chi and like a a nick fury movie and a black panther movie at that point those were like some of the and ant-man of course those were some of like the earlier uh projects that they had even announced at that point but i'd never heard about that uh the early version of uh eternals and, and blade that's pretty cool um any other things that you think people should know about with this book, Brad? It sounds like, I mean, it's it's kind of, to me, it sounds like the packaging and the sort of sleekness and maybe some of the um, concept art and some of that stuff, along with those anecdotes that you'd mentioned, are the real selling point here. Does that feel right? Yeah, it's it's a very dense book. There's a lot of cool behind the scenes photos, um, concept art, like you said. And it's just, yeah, how having it all packaged like this, it really is a definitive uh, retelling of just how Marvel Studios and the Marvel Cinematic Universe came to be. And uh, I will say that probably maybe the most fascinating thing about it is uh, hearing how much uh, Kevin Feige and the rest of the executives kind of struggled um, with what is known as the Marvel Creative Committee, uh, oh, which, yeah. which is all the people that were in New York, including CEO Ike Perlmutter and some other Marvel Comics people, and just how many roadblocks and uh, bad suggestions and ideas they had that they kept trying to, you know, command Kevin Feige to do. And uh, Kevin Feige, you know, I, I think if anything, aside from being the shepherd of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the best thing I think that he probably did was figure out how to uh, compromise between that that committee and also allowing, you know, filmmakers to have a certain amount of autonomy and feel like they still were in creative control uh, of their movies. And if there's one thing that I think the book uh, hits home, maybe a little bit too much is that it, it really tries to give you the idea that like even though marvel studios is this huge blockbuster entity entity now and they're making these huge studio movies um the spirit of everyone working there is still operating in kind of this independent filmmaking mentality where um you know they they, they want to tell the best story and like the way that they work with each other and collaborate um really is an effort where they're not trying to make filmmakers um, adhere to every single whim that they have. You know, they, they do have an overarching, you know, style and sort of like, and, and the, the challenge of fitting into this, you know, constantly growing Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is one of the big, fit, you know, uh, reasons that Edgar Wright's Ant-Man never really took off because 
Um, as they talk about in the book, you know, Edgar Wright was developing Ant-Man since before the Marvel Cinematic Universe even really existed. Mm-hmm. And if he was able to make the movie that he wanted to during that time, it would have been great. But by the time it came around to actually make Ant-Man, so much of the the MCU had already been established that it was hard to make a movie that felt like it fit in with what they were trying to to accomplish. And that combined with the demands that the Marvel Creative Committee had for changes to the Ant-Man script, which were apparently ridiculous, um, really is what pushed Edgar Wright away from uh, from Ant-Man. So, um, yeah, it's the, the it's just uh, if you're a Marvel fan, like it's just, it really is a, a must read because it the way it dives into the making of all these movies. It's uh, it's, it's very interesting. Awesome. Uh, I just want to mention here, Ben, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but um, Joanna Robinson and Dave Gonzalez, who are two of my favorite podcasters and are very much, you know, like in, in the, the sort of film Twitter realm, if you read slash film regularly, you should go follow them and, and their work. They, I know that they are working, they've spent the past actually, I think, two and a half years at this point working on a deep dive book into the history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, And I know that their project, which I think is supposed to come out sometime in 2022, uh, is supposed to be covering the streaming era as well. So I doubt that their book will have the same, um, you know, sort of sleekness in terms of the the production of the book that that you just reviewed, Brad, with like all the the concept art and all that kind of stuff. But I know that they have been interviewing, you know, a ton of folks for that project as well. So I just want to make sure that that was on everybody's radar as well, because that's like, I think the, the book that you have, it sounds like it's, it's definitely, um, you know, produced with, uh, with the, uh, with the blessing of the people at Marvel, right? Like, you're yeah, abs- how- yeah, abs- absolutely. Like the authors even had offices, you know, um, in Marvel studios offices. So this, it was very much a, a collaborative effort with them. And I think that's probably why they may be held back from certain elements that otherwise might have been a little more, uncomfortable to talk about and maybe some people weren't quite as honest about certain experiences not that they were lying necessarily but they probably you know were a little bit more soft when it came to discussing certain you know problems while working on different movies yeah i'm hoping this other this upcoming book has a little bit more leeway in terms of exploring some of those controversial elements a little bit further than you know something that's like essentially sanctioned by marvel studios so um yeah anyway i just wanted to put that on on your radar if you uh if you really love marvel stuff and want to know about the inside story i don't think that book has a title yet um but just follow joanna and and dave on twitter um for updates i'm sure they'll be able to provide those uh, for you as the as the uh, book release gets a little bit closer. So, um, all right, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about all the stories that we uh, mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.